Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go down and go to hell. I'm going to come home alone. Down for 911, we're through emergency. Oh, this is Sandy. We're pretty one look. Talk to the road. What's the problem? Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's still coming down with this and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cherub, cherub face, cherub face little boy who would do it, whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount especially at first, an enormous amount of, of, of horror and guilt remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Sarabay. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be talking about this week, Barney? Well, Tara... On a hot December afternoon in 2007, 70-year-old Paddy Moriarty and his dog went missing in Larimer in the Northern Territory. Foul play was suspected. Police rounded up the usual suspects, the entire population of this tiny desert town, all 11 of them. What? All elderly. What would emerge was plenty of motive and a decade-long feud about pies. I can't wait to hear this story. Are you intrigued? I'm so intrigued. Like, I don't know if I should even do mine because that just sounds amazing. I've got to tell you, it's a cracker. <laughs> I can't wait. What have you got for us? This is a patron request for Emily Kirkpatrick. Mary Piercy was an English woman who lived a bit of an unconventional life. In 1890, she was convicted of murdering her lover's wife and child and sentenced to dangle on a rope for her crimes. Pretty unconventional, right? Hmm. Yeah, it's not super conventional, is it? Oh, sounds interesting. And that's for Emily Kirkpatrick? Yep. Oh, cool. Hi, Emily. Yes, thank you. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. All right, I think it's time for you to get murdery, Tara. All right. Mary Piercy was born Mary Eleanor Wheeler in 1866. Due to a startling lack of Instagram, not much is known about her childhood and teen years. Did she like wearing Daisy Dukes cut so short that the pockets hang out? That's a good look. Did she like making duck face and putting on creepy filters that gave her kitten ears and a nose? That kind of shits me. 
Did she post lots of bikini pics with inspirational messages about following your heart while advertising leave-in conditioner? We don't know. We weren't there. And these important aspects of her life have been lost in the annals of time. <laughs> annals. <laughs> you know what? I actually deliberately put that word there because I knew you would. Oh, uh, the... you, you put in the anal trigger yeah. for me. <laughs> I anal trapped you yet again. Oh, God. You, it's like a snart trap, but anally. <laughs> oh, God. What we do know is that in November 1880, when Mary was 14, her father, Thomas Wheeler, was executed at St. Albans Prison in Hertfordshire. He'd been found guilty of the murder of a local farmer, Edward Anstey, during a robbery of the farmer's home. Now, this would be a dick punch for anyone. Oh, it would. Especially a 14-year-old. Oh, yeah. Most of the story I'm about to tell takes place in 1890 when Mary was 24. She was five feet six inches tall with lovely russet hair and fine blue eyes. So not watery piggy eyes. Fine blue ones, Okay. Oh, not like yours. Not like Harry Powers, thank you. Oh, sorry. She's been described as being of normal build with nice, shapely hands. Nice, shapely hands, huh? Not a lot of women choose to lead with that in their dating profiles, but okay. I too have nice, shapely hands. Well, you've done some hand modelling, haven't you? I have, you? actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't mean to boast. You've probably seen my hands around. I'm a, I'm a hand model millionaire. <laughs> Well, it, well, it happened one time. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. It was like three times, excuse oh, me. Oh, sorry. She was said to not be overly pretty facially. The source <laughs> material I read didn't go so far as to call her a fromby, but it was certainly implied. Either way, she didn't seem to have any trouble attracting the fellas. In her late teens, Mary had a relationship with a carpenter named John Charles Piercy. Although they never married, Mary took his last name and continued to use it after they split up, possibly to avoid the stigma attached to her murderer father's name. Well, yeah. That could have been a thing. Yeah, rumour and innuendo were everything in those days. Oh, they? they still are. Hello, internet. Her only living relatives were her aged mother and her older sister. Mary was pretty out there for a woman of her time. She was far more Courtney Love than Jane Eyre. She kept well-to-do gentleman company and apparently never worked or ever needed to. Yep, she's the original sugar baby. Personally, I imagine being a sugar baby would be a lot of work. I mean, think of all the soup you'd have to spoon-feed to your sugar daddy. Uh, you know how I feel about soup, Tara. You hate it. I mean, you know, like you eat food, you don't drink food. You don't drink soup, you use a spoon. Do you know how long it takes you to drink slash eat a bowl of soup? It's just, it's not enough, it's not enough sustenance for the amount of effort involved. I don't find it to take a lot of oh, effort at I all. I find soup really fucking annoying. I know, you hate it. I really you do. You really hate it. Barney is anti-soup, if oh, you were wondering. No. Don't send us soup. <laughs> yeah, that would like happen. Anymore. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it with the soup, okay? Yeah, enough with the soup already. Yeah, I blame Mike Brown because of all that mum piss he got sent uh, from well, us. Well, he liked it. <laughs> and and you like soup. There no, you I go. I do not, I, look, I just explained why I don't like soup. One of the many admirers of Mary's nice, shapely hands and what she could do with them was a man named Charles Creighton. In 1888, he rented rooms for her to live at at 2 Priory Street, Kentish Town in North London. 
Mary was known to suffer from depression. You which, said Kentish, right? Yeah. I okay. meant to say Kentish. Oh, oh, oh no, typo. no, no. Face typo, mouth typo. <laughs> Two Priory Street, Kentish, town in North Cunton. Are you happy now? North Cunton. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you live. Yes. That's my address. Come at me. Mary was known to suffer from depression, which there wasn't much support for back in the day. Perhaps this is why she drank heavily and had attempted suicide on more than one occasion. Sugar Daddy Charles would visit Mary once a week to collect the rent in kind. And when I say kind, I mean very, very kind. This gave Mary a lot of free time to pursue other endeavours of the flesh and she became involved with a furniture remover called Frank Hogg. Hogg was not a massive pig, but he was pretty proud of himself and his accomplishments as a mover of furniture. Well, let's be frank, Frank. Mm-hmm. Hog. His job even gave him the opportunity to have his own printed business cards. Ooh. Both Hogg and Mary recognised this as the glorious, shiny status symbol that it was. Business cards. There's a leg opener for you, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you didn't tell me you had business cards. Boing. That's the sound of legs opening. What kind of font do you think it was back in the day? Well, you know, it would have been hot metal, a hot, hot metal font. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, no, I'm, that's not a joke. You know, they're, they're <laughs> it lead, sounds like a joke. No, lead type. They didn't have typesetters. You're the those. lead type. No, it would have been Times Roman probably. Yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been called Times New Roman back then, would it? No, no. <laughs> Just Times Old Roman. Mary and Hogg were not exclusive, and his business card-carrying sperm took a long swim and knocked up a woman named Phoebe. Keen to do the right thing, he married her. They had a baby daughter. Guess what they called her? Hortense. You wish. They called her Phoebe. Confusing, right? Ah, Phoebe Jr. I guess so. Their marriage was not a very happy one, but even Mary agreed that him marrying Phoebe was the honourable thing to do. But don't worry, Barney. This didn't stop Hogg passing his peen to Mary on the regular. It's okay. Don't worry. He's still fucked Mary. I was concerned for a little while there, but thank you. I could tell. So Mary used to put a light in her window to signal to Hogg so he'd know she was free and ready for the D and he had a key to her house in her V. Oh, wow. That rhymed and everything. Mary and Phoebe Senior were friends. But Mary wasn't super thrilled to watch her and Hogg play house with their baby daughter. Murder is predominantly perpetrated by men. Women do it a lot less often and have very different motives, the biggest two being financial gain or what they perceive as doing it for love. On the morning of October 24, 1890, Mary paid a neighbourhood lad named Willie Holmes a penny to deliver a note to 32-year-old Phoebe Hogg Sr., inviting her to tea that afternoon at Mary's house. Well, how delightful. Well, that sounds lovely. It's not. Phoebe arrived on time and brought one-year-old baby Phoebe with her. It was a Phoebe squared kind of afternoon. At 4pm, Mary's neighbour, Charlotte Priddington, heard the sound of breaking glass coming from Mary's house. She called out over the fence to see if everything was okay, but received no reply and dismissed it as some kind of accident. At 7pm that night, a woman's body was found lying by a roadside in Crossfield Road by a man returning home from work. Horrified, he ran and reported it to the police. 
The dead woman's body was covered in blood and her head was wrapped up in a cardigan. That's not how you wear a cardigan. Not when you're putting it on yourself, it isn't. The body was picked up and taken to Hampstead Police Station and then to the morgue. It was found that the dead woman had a fractured skull and that her throat had been cut so violently that she'd almost been decapitated. There were also bruises on her head and arms, consistent with her having struggled to defend herself. An examination of the area in Crossfield Road where the body was found revealed that the murder had taken place somewhere else. There was nothing found on the dead body to help the police identify the murdered woman. Later that same evening, a constable on the beat discovered a pram that was covered in blood in Hamilton Terrace, which was around a mile from where the woman's body was found. The next morning, much to everyone's dismay, the body of a baby girl was discovered. Her cause of death was suffocation and her tiny body was otherwise unmarked except for a couple of scratches. Oh, no. Frank Hogg and his sister Clara had reported Phoebe Senior and the baby missing when they failed to return home that night. They were particularly worried when they read about the discovery of the woman's body in the Saturday evening paper. At Hogg's request, Clara had gone to Mary's to ask if she'd seen Phoebe. Mary said she hadn't, but agreed to go with Clara to the morgue to see if the dead woman was in fact Phoebe. Mary's behaviour at the morgue was pretty fucking weird. When she and Clara viewed the body, Mary became hysterical, screaming and crying and hurling herself around the place. She laid the whole, I'm so sad about my boyfriend's wife being murdered act on way too thick. The police were a little suspicious. They asked Mary and Clara to look at the pram, which Clara then identified as belonging to Phoebe. After the police had established Hogg's wife Phoebe and their baby were the murder victims, they searched the Hogg residence and brought Frank Hogg in for questioning. When they found out that Hogg had been stepping out with Mary, they were suspicious and added her to their list of suspects. When questioning her neighbours, they heard about the glass breaking on the afternoon Phoebe was murdered and another neighbour stated that she'd seen Mary pushing the pram with a large object in it on the evening of the murder. Little Phoebe is believed to have been placed in the pram alive with her mother's body on top of her and that it was the weight of her dead mother's body that actually suffocated the baby girl. Oh, that's really awful. Yeah, there's nothing good to say about that. The police decided to interview Mary and went around to Priory Street to carry out a thorough search of her home. The police searched her house and found blood splatters on the kitchen walls and ceiling. They also discovered a blood-stained skirt, apron, poker and two carving knives. There were also clear signs of a struggle and two broken windows in the kitchen. A rug with blood stains on it smelt strongly of paraffin as an attempt had been made to clean it. The police also found a number of love letters between Mary and Hogg. When asked where all the blood had come from, Mary said that she had a problem with mice and was trying to kill them. Mary's behaviour during the police search was also quite unusual. She sat at her piano playing tunes and singing, Killing mice, killing mice, killing mice! Detective Inspector Bannister decided to arrest Mary at this point and charge her with the murders of Phoebe and her baby. 
When Mary was searched, bloodstains were found on some of the clothes she was wearing. There were also scratches on her hands and two wedding rings on her fingers, one of which was identified as Phoebe Hoggs. Mm. Criminal mastermind, right? Your mind has been now. Hog. <laughs> I shall be Mrs. Hog. Mmm, darkness. Mary was taken into custody and appeared before the courts. After hearing the evidence, she was charged with the murders. While in court awaiting the committal hearing, she told Sarah Sawhill, who was the woman looking after her, that Phoebe had come to tea on the afternoon of her murder. She said that as they were having tea, Phoebe said something that offended Mary and they'd gotten into an argument. Mary realised that what she was saying was incriminating herself and refused to say more. Mary's trial opened on December 1st, 1890 at the Central Criminal Court of the Old Bailey. She entered a formal plea of not guilty before the prosecution began to outline its case against her. They read out several amorous letters that Mary had written to Frank Hogg, which they stated showed the depth of her love for him. Dear Frank, I love your curly tail. Dear Frank, I like nothing better than licking your curly tail. (laughs) Sexy, sexy love. Mary. Uh, They also claimed the motive for the murder was jealousy of Phoebe, now that Mary had to share hog with her. Maybe she thought Phoebe was hogging hog. I don't know. I wasn't there. Evidence was also given regarding the crime taking place at Mary's house and the nature and method of Phoebe's injuries, particularly the level of overkill that had been inflicted during Phoebe's near decapitation. John Piercy, Mary's former boyfriend, identified the cardigan found wrapped around Phoebe's head as one that he'd given to Mary. I gave that to her. Oh, don't re-gift the cardigan on a dead woman that you've murdered's body. Also, maybe don't murder anyone would be a good starting point. Good advice. Mm, Thank you. Evidence of premeditation was given to the court in the form of the written invitation Phoebe received to come to tea and the alleged drawing of the curtains to prevent anyone seeing the attack in the kitchen. Despite the evidence of premeditation, there wasn't really much to show that Mary had tried to conceal her activities or to clean up the house afterwards apart from the paraffin on the carpet. Like many murderers, Mary was a first-time offender and had no previous convictions or charges of violence. Her defence team questioned the circumstantial evidence against her and also whether a woman of her size would be able to inflict such heinous injuries. Mary did not take the stand during the trial and remained poker-faced throughout it. So get this, right? Mary had epilepsy. So, of course, her defence tried to turn this into an insanity plea and make out that people with epilepsy go into fugue states where they murder their lovers' wives and children. Or maybe just people named Phoebe. Yeah, I don't know about that. It's not something I've heard of before. Mm. Remember it's back in the olden days where they don't get the difference between what actually makes someone insane and what makes them epileptic? They claim she may have been in an epileptic state at the time of the crime or that she'd been drinking prior to it. One of her neighbours stated that she seemed boozed when she saw her after the murder and this symptom was said to be found in people recovering from an epileptic fit. I feel like they're being a bit general here, but you know. Mary was found guilty after just 52 minutes, halfway through the third day of her trial. 
In accordance with normal practice, Mary was asked if she had anything to say why the court should not give her judgment of death in accordance with the law, to which she replied, I'm glad I killed the bitch. Pretty much. I say I'm innocent of this charge. Justice Denman then sentenced her to hang. He was like, (laughs) damn shit you are. There was no appeal process in England before 1907, so that wasn't an option. However, her solicitor really tried to work the insanity due to epilepsy defence. The Home Office did not buy this argument and her execution was set to go ahead. On her arrival back at Newgate from the Old Bailey, Mary was made to bathe and put on a prison uniform, which was a plain grey shift dress, before being taken to the condemned cell where she was guarded round the clock. Frank Hogg was given permission to visit Mary in Newgate on the afternoon before her hanging, but he stood her up. Oh, that's great. She was pretty devastated about it. I mean, in her head, she'd done this for him, so the least he could do was pop in. On her final evening, Mary was visited by her solicitor, Mr Palmer, who's definitely a sausage dog, who she instructed to deal with certain bequests and also to place a cryptic personal ad for her in the Madrid newspapers. A Spanish newspaper? Tell me what that's about. Yeah, I know. The ad was to read, M-E-C-P, last wish of M-E-W, have not betrayed M-E-W. Mary never revealed the meaning of this mysterious message, but her birth name was Mary Elizabeth Wheeler, so it's assumed that the M-E-W stood for that. Nobody has ever come up with a believable theory of what it meant. Um, Some people think it might have been a message to an accomplice in the murders, but no one's been clear on why she wanted it to run in Spain, since it seems that Mary had never been there or even left England. So maybe a Spanish accomplice, or maybe she was just nuts. Mary refused to confess to Mr Palmer or her mother, despite their repeated questioning. Her execution took place on Tuesday the 23rd of December 1890 at London's Newgate Prison. Well, Merry fucking Christmas, huh? Yeah. Well, it wasn't a public execution though, so I guess it was a gift in a way. Her guards reported that on the night before her execution, her fortitude was remarkable. Remarkable fortitude, hey? Yep. I'm glad I killed the bitch. When the sheriff asked if she had any final statement, Mary told the people assembled, My sentence is a just one, but a good deal of the evidence against me is false, before the procession started out across the yard to the execution shed. So she's kind of admitting it. Yeah. Mary died without a struggle. Her neck was broken instantly by the length of the drop and the position of the brass eyelet. She had herself a good um, hangman. Well, they're she very good in the old English days, yes. Oh, amazing they, hangman. They hung a Brilliant. lot of, they, they hanged a lot of people. The British know how to hang. They really do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, so, not, that's not funny at all. Did anyone laugh? Why are you laughing? I didn't. Oh, that was me. Yeah. <laughs> when you no. can't tell who's laughing anymore, we just, we're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Always. Mary was not a figure of public sympathy. The whole murdering a baby thing is pretty much universally frowned upon, and rightly so. Outside the prison, in the cold December morning, 300 people had gathered to hear the sounds of St. Sepultura's church bell tolling and watch the black flag flying above the prison to signify the execution had been carried out. 
A cheer erupted from the crowd as the flag was hoisted. Hooray! Isn't that weird, though? We've got Sepultura and Black Flag. Yeah, We've dropped, got a couple of heavy bands in yeah, that Yeah, you dropped a few seminal punk band yeah. names there. Nice. Well, I guess well, that's metal. where they yeah. got them from. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Mary's body was left dangling on the rope for the customary hour in the brick-lined pit beneath the trap. We've got to make sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It was then moved and buried in an unmarked grave within Newgate Prison. Now, of course, Mary's murder case generated extraordinary attention from the media at the time. London's Madame Tussauds Wax Museum made a wax figure of Mary for their Chamber of Horrors exhibit. They also bought baby Phoebe's blood-stained pram and the entire contents of Mary's kitchen. Wow. Classy. Was that popular? Oh, yeah. When the exhibit opened, it attracted a crowd of like over 30,000 people. Wow. Um, Yeah, the whole thing was a bit of a let's grab souvenirs because the noose that was used to hang Mary Piercy is on display at the Black Museum of Scotland Yard. Hmm. Yeah, I think everything she touched became an exhibit. Bit of dark tourism there. Massive amounts. So, okay, so that's the end of that, but I've got something kind of ridiculous to bring up as well regarding Oh, her. really? Oh, yeah. there's more. <laughs> okay, this is, this is whack. Mary Piercy has been suggested as a suspect in the Jack the Ripper slayings. She was apparently the only female suspect mentioned at the time. I call massive bullshit on this as Jack was meticulous and Mary was sloppy as fuck. Also, the murders Mary committed weren't done in the same way and there were no abdominal mutilations. Just because she nearly decapitated her. Seems pretty different. Well, it kind of ties in, though. In May 2006, DNA testing of saliva on stamps affixed to letters allegedly sent by Jack the Ripper to London newspapers and thought by some modern writers to be genuine appeared to come from a woman. So there's a whole school of thought that's like, it was Jacqueline the Ripper. Well, he could have just said, lick these for me, darling. Darling, I'll give you a penny if you lick these for me, darling. That's right. Yeah, that would have done the trick, don't you think? I think so. Oh, hell of a story. Yeah, thank you so much, Emily Kirkpatrick, for recommending it. Hmm. Green Chef is a USDA-certified organic company that includes everything you need to easily cook delicious meals that you can feel good about. Recipes are quick and easy with step-by-step instructions, chef tips and photos to guide you along. They have a diverse array of recipes that range from global cuisines to classic comfort foods, all with a signature touch. With Green Chef, it's easy to maintain a specialty diet and enjoy exciting new options. Meal plans include paleo, vegan, vegetarian, keto, gluten-free, omnivore and carnivore. That's a big range, isn't it? Yeah. And did you know, Tara, for $50 off your first box of Green Chef, go to greenchef.us forward slash bloody murder. So this offer is only available in the United States. So we haven't had a chance to try it, which is a shame because we have friends in the US who can't stop talking about how great Green Chef is. They're blown away by the quality and convenience and say that it's really given them more time in the day to get things done without relying on unhealthy takeaway meals. We've heard the Italian breaded pork chops with barley, mushrooms, sun-dried tomatoes and parmesan is particularly delicious. It does sound delicious. So let Green Chef do the meal planning, grocery shopping and most of the prep for you week after week. And don't forget, for $50 off your first box of Green Chef, go to greenchef.us forward slash bloody murder. 
and there'll be details of Green Chef in the notes of this show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Barney, I believe that it's time you got murdery. Now, firstly, let me apologize for my voice. I've been struggling with a bit of man flu this week. Oh, I think it actually sounds better than usual. <coughs> really? Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you. All right. Nestled amongst the NT News headlines, newborn puppies stolen by armed robbers who threatened pregnant mother <laughs> and camel hunter survived six days in the outback by eating ants, I came across this cracker of a story titled Mysterious Disappearance in Small Australian Town Turns Neighbour Against Neighbour. And after reading the first paragraph, I knew I needed to look into this story more. I'm glad you did. Are you intrigued? <laughs> So intrigued. I also, it makes me want to eat ants. Is that weird? Oh, ants are very tasty. Yeah, they're a bit tangy, but I hear they're full of vitamins and protein. It all began as the sun was sinking into the red sand on a hot as balls day on December 16th, 2017 in Larimer in the Northern Territory. Larimer is small, real small, with a population of only 11 people. It's also in the middle of bumfuck nowhere. 100 miles southeast of Catherine and 266 miles southeast of Darwin. Built along the Stewart Highway, it is the home of the Big Stubby, a large <laughs> replica of a Darwin Stubby beer bottle. Yeah, it's like a couple of metres tall, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, they're really big, those Darwin Stubbies. It's like at least two or three Taras. <laughs> well, that's right. According to the New York Times, the main road through town has long been notorious for murders and mysterious disappearances including a British backpacker who vanished in 2001. Yes, this story is so weird, the New York Times reported on it. Wow, okay. I was excited before, but now I'm so excited. So let me tell you about this dot on the map, Tara. Yeah. Larimer's fuel station burnt down in October 2009, so no petrol is available there. The closest fuel is 60 miles away. That's a Mad Max shit right there. It really is. Unusual is often the usual in Larimer, it's the kind of place where you might find a wild donkey at your back door <laughs> or a death adder in your bath. A place where neighbourhood disputes sometimes result in a wallaby carcass being thrown into a person's front yard Gosh. or one's pet peacock being fed to the resident croc. There is also pet buffaloes being made into pies. All these things are true. What? On this hot December afternoon, Irish-born, long-term Larimer resident Paddy Moriarty went to the only pub in town, the Pink Panther. It's called the Pink Panther because it's pink. (laughs) And because of the life-size Pink Panther sitting on a chair out the front next to the gigantic brown stubby. Yep. Paddy went there to end his day, as he always ended it by smashing a few beers. Australia, mate. Australia. He downed eight 4X golds, wiped the froth off his magnificent moustache and then left for home with his dog on his quad bike. Oh, wow. I'm thinking of Jason Abercrombie right now with the whole Forex thing. I thought he was the only guy on earth that drank it. (laughs) 
After Paddy smashed these beers, he was never seen again. Neither was his dog a Kelpie named Kelly. Oh, Kelly Pie. Oh, Kelly Pie. Paddy Moriarty was a labourer who spent most of his life in Australia's rugged outback. Police described him as Caucasian, 70 years of age, medium build with tanned appearance, around 178 centimetres tall, with short black grey hair and a moustache. I would describe him as a muscly old dude with a good tan, sporting a cowboy hat and rocking a sweet moustache. Wow, so the moustache in this guy is strong. It's very strong. Yeah, you showed me a picture of him and I'm like, that's a strong moustache. As a lad of 18, Paddy left a freezing cold, poverty-stricken life in Ireland to come to Australia on a cruise ship. It was Fairstar, actually. (laughs) Yeah, Fairstar, the fun ship. Yeah. He made for the top end and never left. That happens. Wearing a beige cowboy hat, blue singlet and thongs, and holding a can of 4X gold, the lushly moustached Paddy Moriarty even made the cover of photographer David Darcy's 2013 book, Every Man and His Dog. That was such a sweet picture. That's the one you showed me, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Four days after he went missing, the police arrived in Larimer and entered Paddy's unlocked house to find his weathered cowboy hat on a cooler box and a barbecue chicken still in the microwave. Uh-oh. I mentioned Paddy's hat was left behind, an important fact, Tara, because he never went anywhere without it. Paddy's car, quad bike and reading glasses were all left behind and food was left out for his dog, Kelly. Okay, so he made it home from the pub. He did. But where did he go? The police immediately suspected murder most foul and had been treating the case as a murder, with every single person in Larimer, all 11 of them, being (laughs) grilled. Now, I mentioned that population of 11, and that small number is split into factions, Tara. Some neighbours have ignored one another for more than a decade. Others occasionally yell abuse at each other when they pass in the street. <laughs> like, hey, cunt, fuck wit. Yeah, fuck ye. They are all suspects. So why are these 11 people split into factions, Barney? Well, it's a pie war. And I'll tell you more about that later. Ah, say no more. Pie War, I get it. (laughs) No, actually, I would love to hear more about the Pie War. Well, a three-day search by foot on four-wheel drives and from the air ruled out death by misadventure. Police even searched the local rubbish tip and nearby dam but failed to uncover any trace of Paddy or his dog or his awesome moustache. Not even the moustache? No. Detective Sergeant Matt Allen, who was in charge of the case, says the time frame for survival has expired and Paddy's disappearance is being treated as suspicious. We don't expect Paddy will be found alive, he says. Only seven months after he vanished, a coronial inquest was established because many of the town's residents were elderly. Yeah, that's pretty fast. They're all in their 70s. All 11 of them? Yeah. This is a crazy old town. Yeah, it's a bit of um, Australian Gothic here, isn't it? I think we should go there. Police told the inquest his body would have been found if he was above ground. Oh, so they think he might be several feet under? Yeah. Topping the list of potential suspects are a former Pink Panther bartender and a gardener with whom Paddy had fought with just days before his disappearance, as well as the owner of a roadside tea house with whom Paddy had been having a years-long feud with. Each are pointing the finger at each other and a neighbour or two while denying their own involvement in Paddy's disappearance. Now, there are only two gathering places for residents and visitors in Larimer, 
the Pink Panther and Fran's Devonshire Tea House. Let's talk about the pub first. Well, that's where we'd probably go if we went there. Well, yeah, absolutely. Barry Sharp, the publican of the Pink Panther and one of Paddy's best mates, says all he knew about the disappearance was that his friend did not show up for church, a Sunday morning ritual in which residents gather in the Pink Panther's front room to watch Landline. <laughs> they call that church? <laughs> well, well, Tara, could you explain Landline to our overseas listeners? Oh, okay. So it's made by the Australian Broadcasting Commission and it's like a, a show that's on every week, sort of about farming stuff, you know, like rural current affairs, dog trials, wheat prices, yeah, Droughts, well, farming. that's right. What the wheat prices are, the frozen orange juice yeah, prices. Yeah, like uh, outback kind of news. Pork belly futures, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, you explained that very well. I'm sure. It was then that locals sounded the alarm. Paddy would never miss Landline. Well, no. He's a church-going man. The publican of the Pink Panther, Barry, keeps in a menagerie of exotic animals behind the bright pink hotel which he has owned for almost 15 years. So he's got about 600 animals there. It's quite, it's quite a lot of animals. That must be a lot of land to have that many animals. What are they? Are well, you going to tell me? I will. Oh, God. The mix includes rare and exotic birds, snakes, and a foreboding saltwater crocodile named Sneaky Sam. <laughs> he has his own croc. So it's in an enclosure, I'm guessing. Well, cause... yeah, no, it doesn't wander about in a pub. No, <laughs> that's not a good idea. Now, Sneaky Sam, to whom some suspect Paddy was fed to oh. after being murdered. Oh. One of the last people to see Paddy was Richard Simpson, one-time bartender at the Pink Panther, who has a reputation for volatility. Okay. Not always what you're looking for in a barman. He was every day pissed before lunch. Barry says of Richard, his former employee, not only smashed, he was not very pleasant. Okay, so no wonder he's a former employee. Richard scoffed at the accusations when asked about them during the coroner's inquest. Upon being told that some people in Larimer thought he had something to do with the disappearance, Richard Simpson declared them all, Goddamn fools! Richard was questioned about guns at the hotel and said he would use a shotgun to kill hawks, threatening the hotel's pet birds before feeding the animals to Sneaky Sam, the Pink Panther's uh, pet 3.5-metre croc. 3.5 metres? That's huge! It's a big croc. Fed him to the crocodile or the pythons, depending on the size of the hawk. <laughs> Asked if he would harm Paddy, Richard said, Paddy was my mate. Why would I? Oh, I feel like Richard might have been drunk when he was saying that. <laughs> well, I am. <laughs> Richard instead suggested that the police should be looking elsewhere, down the road at the tea house. Now, Tara, I'd like you to do the voice of Fran, the tea house owner. Is that okay? Yeah, that's cool. Now, you showed me a picture of her before so I could get this, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm just working off one photograph. I've got no pies left. A short woman with spiked blonde hair has been known to shriek from the kitchen. It's a popular spot for tourists with rows of RVs lined up outside and patrons spilled onto the road to buy tea and pies, despite online reviews warning of rubbish food and questionable prices. <laughs> the cook, Fran Hodgetts, has long prided herself on her scones and her meat pies. She often tells visitors they are famous around the world. Some disagree. I reckon he's in the pie and he went through the mincer, said one resident. Oh, delicious patty pies. There is actually a pies company called Patty's Pies in Australia. <laughs> That's is. taken on a new meaning. 
The tea house's front garden is scattered with old toys and signs trumpeting Fran's culinary skills. Paddy lived directly across the main road from the tea house, and several people in town say it had pissed him off when her customers parked on his property. Oh, yeah, get off my lawn. As payback, residents say Paddy routinely told them not to eat her food <laughs> because nothing was homemade or fresh, adding that even his dog would not eat her shitful pies. <laughs> oh, that's harsh. My dog would eat anyone's shitful pies. Well, yeah, I've, I've seen so Poppy fat, do that. I guess. No. <laughs> According to publican Barry Sharp, a pie war began more than a decade ago when several shops in the town were selling homemade meat pies. Barry had decided his crocodile Sam, sneaky Sam, was not <laughs> enough of an attraction, so he started selling his own meat pies. Uh-oh. Paddy advertised those pies in front of his house, just across the road from the tea house, <laughs> with a massive sign that read, Larimer Hotel, best pies in town. <laughs> oh, that is a pie war if I've ever seen one. Fran didn't like it very much. She thought she was the original pie maker here. She should be the only one, Barry said. There were also reports of a number of signs linking Fran's pies to those of Sweeney Todd, the fictional demon barber of Fleet Street, whose <laughs> victims were baked into pies. Now, Fran had been baking pies in the Territory since the late 1970s, and she said she was so well established that the competition was never a threat to her business. I was the first one ever to make pies in the Northern Territory, she said. My pies were the first ones ever to do buffalo and camel and crocodile. It was the first one ever, so it wouldn't even matter if they put a fucking pie shop across the road. It wouldn't matter, because nobody cooks the same, eh? <laughs> ben Roth, who grew up in the town, remembers allegations of poaching customers from competing pie specials, but says he ate the pies from both the Roadhouse and from France. Not Take a side, motherfucker. <laughs> Not much else to do in a small town. Might as well fight over pies, he said. <laughs> Is he, like, older as well? Is everyone there older? Oh, yeah, they're all in their 70s. Wow. Yeah. But Paddy actively discouraged people from eating Fran's pies. Barry said Paddy would say, Don't go over there. She's going to rub you blind. You can't eat the food. You're going to be fucking sick. He'd say... She's just a dirty old fucking bush pig. Don't go near her. And a lot of them wouldn't. <laughs> Fran filed a personal violence order against Paddy and Catherine local court in October 2016. It was dismissed for a lack of evidence. She alleged Paddy had been tormenting her for years. She claimed he had poisoned her palm trees and stolen a beach umbrella. What? <laughs> Them's fighting things. Oh, that's right. Fran said Paddy regularly taunted her. He often called her the bush pig, a name that caught on with some of the neighbours. She also claimed to have caught him slipping a picture of her under her front fence smeared in human poo. Aw, I just want the mongrel to leave me alone, she said. Paddy Moriarty wasn't the only one who didn't like Fran. <laughs> Why not? I'm fucking awesome. <laughs> Eat my pies. Richard Simpson described her in a statement to police. Short, fat, abrupt, rude and overbearing unless you're doing her a favour. Yeah, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> Morris Darby, who was once friends in... <laughs> Morris Darby, who was She's once... She's taken over my soul. I'm her now. <laughs> oh, I, lo I love Fran. Morris Darby, who was once Fran's employee, said... She detested Patty and likewise. 
During one of their many arguments, Fran put a dead kangaroo on Patty's property. He paid her back by putting it near the back of her pie oven so it started to cook when she turned them on. <laughs> Morris said he stopped working for Fran because he believed she was starting to rip people off at her tea house. You can't keep telling people they're homemade pies when they're from Woolies and charging them $13, he said. <laughs> Fran said she last saw Patty four days before he went missing, just after the dead kangaroo incident. The years-long feud led some locals to tell police she wanted him dead, an allegation she calls... Bullshit! Imagine me carrying a dog and a body. I mean, come on! I've had me septic done, me incinerators stitched, my house done four times. Nobody's found nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm going to run with this, baby. (laughs) Suspicion fell on Fran after Bobby Roth, another 70-year-old, by the way, (laughs) a Larimer local of 19 years who used to wash dishes at the tea house, said the cafe owner didn't care for Patty. She used to say, I'll kill that, Patty, he said, breaking into tears, though he added later that she'd also threatened to kill her husband, Bill. How many times have you said I'm going to murder him? Fran was asked at the inquest. Oh, fucking million, million, millions of times. <laughs> later, Fran ended up shifting attention to the gardener. <laughs> Her gardener. <laughs> Later, Fran ended up shifting attention to her gardener, Owen Laurie. According to Fran, it was all about an argument that he had with Paddy about Kelly, Paddy's dog, three days before he disappeared. That day, Kelly had been barking at the tea house from a spot in the middle of the road. An argument between Paddy and Owen ensued with him shouting at Paddy, Shut that fucking dog up or I'll fucking shut it up for you. Owen told the inquest, Paddy replied with, You'll shut your mouth, you old conter, I'll take your knees out from under you. <laughs> Fran told the inquest that Owen was going to jump the fence. I told him, don't do anything stupid. Owen Larry told the inquest, I'm a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> we need to go to this town, Barney, we do. Some weeks before Paddy went missing, Owen had been planting trees along the front fence. Fran advised him not to, given the risks that the plants will be poisoned. Any fucking bastard comes here and poison my fucking garden, Owen told her, and he'll be the first murderer in Larimer. Around the bar at the Pink Panther, patrons still talk about Paddy Moriarty's disappearance. Because he has no family in Australia, the public trustee now controls his property. Out the front of his house is a large missing person sign. It includes a picture of Paddy smiling. Our small Australian country towns are supposed to be peaceful places where their dwindling elderly populations have strong community bonds. Fuck that. It seems the only thing that the 11 or so residents of Larimer have is an abiding hatred of each other. The town's a little fragmented, one resident said. Communication lines aren't what they should be. You sound like you're trying to push out a shit, man. (laughs) So I've got a cold. Maybe you are. Now, Tara, there are just four graves at the Larimer Cemetery. Writer Andrew McMillan, he's kind of famous, an old mate of Paddy's, a couple of station owners and an overland telegraph worker who died in 1899. Will there be a fifth when they eventually find Paddy? Or will he walk off the red sand with Kelly the dog, stroll into the Pink Panther... 
ask what the fuss is all about in order of Forex Gold? Who knows? Oh, my God. God, that's amazing. Uh, well, I also think he's probably dead. Yeah, yeah. And Fran probably had something to do <laughs> oh, with it. Oh, it wasn't me that fucking done it. I've been too busy making pies. Oh, there is a lot more information on this if you want to Google it, yeah. by the way. It's a hell of a story. <laughs> we have to go there. Yeah. Hey, Tara, I have a question for you. What? I have a question for you. What? The question is... What? What is Aussie has? What? Aussie has a tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. You nimrod! We've been doing this for 20 months every single week. How do you not know? Uh, Sorry, sorry, were you talking in? No. Swimmers at a public pool in Mount Isa in Queensland got a bit of a bitey surprise when they found they were sharing the water with a family of baby freshwater crocodiles. Ooh. A man doing laps just after the pool opened on a Sunday morning made the unusual discovery. You know what, Barney? I reckon he was one of those old guys who swims every single day wearing a little Speedo and just zinc on his nose. Ah, uh, with the leathery skin kind Yeah, of yeah, stuff. like sun can't hurt me, I'm invincible. Kind of like Paddy Moriarty. Yep, yeah. just his schnoz, just got to cover that with zinc. She'll be right, mate. Oh, it's probably Paddy. I also reckon when he saw the crocs, he went, Struth! What the bloody hell's going on here then? Might have said that. The man then alerted the pool's manager, Brian Rodriguez, whose nickname is probably something like Rotto. He said, Oh, Brian, I don't mean to alarm you, but I think there's a crocodile in the pool. Rotto said, Oh, we got everyone out of the water and we ended up finding five baby crocs swimming around. Then we found another two wandering around on the concrete after that as well. It's believed that snot-nosed fuckwit pranksters released the reptiles into the pool earlier that morning. And it was Rotto's job to run around trying to catch them. He said, oh, they're probably between 25 and 30 centimetres, so they're not huge. Probably like the length of a ruler. Another two crocodiles were found hiding under tables and behind roller doors throughout the day in very hot temperatures. This took the total number of baby crocs found to nine. Ooh. Rotto admits he nearly shat himself, wondering whether their parents might be nearby, saying, Oh, when they became more and more, I thought, wow, has someone played a prank or is their mummy or daddy around? We took our turtles out of the tank that we have there at the pool and we put them in the water there for them to be like something a bit nicer than the chlorinated water they've been swimming round in. The crocodiles were released back into the wild by a local ranger. CCTV spotted a group of people loitering outside the pool shortly before the crocs were found. Rotto said, My guess is that somebody's just jumped the fence or chucked them in the pool when they found their way to the water. Judging by their size, they'll be a few weeks old, so maybe someone's picked them up, probably from the lake, and taken them home. Then they've either dumped them there to be a funny bugger, or they weren't sure what to do with them now, being that they're a little bigger. By the way, Barney, this is not the first crocodile encounter at the Mount Isa Aquatic Centre. 
Because of course it isn't. Of course it isn't. No, no. Rotto actually had to wrestle out a two-metre croc earlier in the year. I feel like Rotto has more of a tough job than most people who run a local swimming pool. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> oh, we yeah. love you, Rotto. Good work. Yeah, good work, Rotto. And good work on that Aussie as. <laughs> that, that was quite memorable. I, I'll know what an Aussie as is next week. Oh, well, <laughs> I hope so. Also, I was raised in Queensland a bit, and it really sometimes does go vocally like this. <laughs> I don't know how to describe that in words except to just fucking do it. Well, I guess all countries have their regional accents going on. No. Oh, no. We have a Melbourne accent, no, I guess. No, no, there is only one allowable accent in the world, and it's the one that you personally have. And everyone who pronounces something differently, you have to write them emails and tell them that they're wrong. So this nearly brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, But before we go, we do have a bit of an announcement. Due to the sheer amount of work that goes into producing the podcast, and even more so staying on top of all the other things that go with it, we've come to the realisation that we're not going to be able to keep releasing an episode every week. We don't want to burn ourselves out releasing content that isn't of a standard that we're happy with. We need the time to make sure we can bring you the best podcast we can make. So instead, we will be releasing an episode every two weeks. Yeah, and we'll still be doing a Patreon episode a month. That won't change. Um, But thank you so much to everyone for your support. And who knows, maybe we'll be able to come back weekly at some point. But for now, we really do need to go fortnightly. Well, that's right. We, we Look, we have jobs um, and, and, and other things to well, attend to. Well, my haunted to. doll collection, well, for example. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, we don't want to grind it out. We want to make it better. And yeah, we, we don't want to no. just sort of do it because we have to and just get it over the line. We, we really want to kind of be funny and, and have good research and, you know, have fun with it. So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat and Insta. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thanks for listening and supporting us. It really is very important. And we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And just let the pricks win. They're going to anyway. And keep kicking against the pricks. That's better. (laughs) Hey, Tara. That's just too bad. Hey, Tara, are you super jelly at me? Because I'm going to see the dollop live tonight. This fucker is going to see the dollop without me because we're fighting now. Cunt. I'm not fighting. I'm just, my friend asked me and got me a ticket. Yeah, my friend got me a ticket. Remember when I went, we should get tickets to Zorp? And you're like, oh, the good ones are so there. Well, I, look. I'm just going to go with my other female friend who I'm trying to replace well, you with. If there's a woman named Brandy on the podcast next week, just know this is why. Hey, it was a lie that I told you so I didn't have to go with you. <laughs> I was, God, I can't, I can't make it even more clear. It doesn't matter. I actually have front seat tickets. My partner and I do. Um, don't assume that I'm going to acknowledge you when I see you. They had they had the intercom on in the room and they kept lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Me and Gareth and Dave are just gonna like party in the green room. Gary Gary and I are gonna meet and he's gonna say, You're my instant best friend, and we're gonna have drinks and it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be so amazing. I love the dollop. You fucker. I love him too.
Yeah. Don't love you much though. Going. Oh come on, fucker. <laughs> oh, hey, I'll sing you the song again. Okay. Well, you know what? When Barney was actually offered this ticket, he he messaged me to ask if it was if it was okay with me because we do both love the dollop, and I'm like, of course it is. You should go. Like, oh my god, come on. Yeah. Um. Yeah. We don't have any new ones, and we don't want to look like sad fucks, do we? No, no, we don't. Look, okay, so you, let me just get this. Fuck. Oh, fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is going swimmingly. Really I'm really isn't. glad this uh, is going so way, fucking well. There's some things I've been mean to yeah? say to you. Yeah, and what are they? Well, I'm just going to keep them to myself. You just think about oh, what's in my mind. Bonnie is a pissy bitch, a pissy little bitch. Pissy bitch. Bonnie is a pissy bitch, a pissy little bitch. Damn straight. You like that song? No. You want to put that to music, hey, motherfucker? Look, look, I've got nothing to say. <laughs> Barney is a pissy bitch. Charlotte the Harlot. Now, Lankine. stop it. I like burping by myself. I know a lot of people need people to burp with, but I can just do it by myself, and it's it's actually quite... Uh, if Barney burps in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, did it make a sound? Well, everyone else can go and get fucked. <laughs> Just the sound of you telling everyone to go and get I'll fucked. belch by myself. I don't care. Yeah. You don't have to come to my belch yeah. party. I'm happy enough belching well, alone. I'm not a performing burp machine for fucking everybody else, man. They can all, they're all a bunch of cunts <laughs> and they can all shove it up their asses. I think we might have some little bit of, of like angry Barney in the house. I'm a little angry actually at the moment. Mm-hmm. I've got a fucking horrible man flu yeah. that I've been pushing through the whole week. Because, yeah. you know, life does not stop when Barney gets sick. I still need to do my shit. It actually speeds up, I believe. I, b- I believe it does speed up. I have a, a, a tilt in my voice. I'm fine with it. Yeah, if you're not, it. well, you know where you can go. You can go to the place where people go when they go and fuck themselves. And I can tell you where you live. You live in a fool's paradise (laughs) if you think I care about what you think about the way my voice is tilting. What if people love it? Like, they're cool, though, Really? Right? Oh, yeah, man. Come around, man. Yeah. You can hang out with me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not not everyone's a hater. I will let you pour me a drink, and I will drink that drink. <laughs> oh, you are so generous and kind. It's almost like you're a Thank patron you. of our show. Well, I am. I'm the biggest patron of this show. I show up every week. Oh, well, hello. What am I? Well, you show up. I don't know. Sometimes you might phone it in, though. Are you going to phone <laughs> it in today, or are you going to be on, on point, Tara? Just because I'm not crying at the beginning doesn't mean I'm not here. I had a, sh- <laughs> I, I had a shitty day. Someone punched me in the nuts He earlier. got a dick punch. We were all ready to record, and we had everything ready, and then someone sent Barney, like, a dick punch. And then I was like... Don't go punching Barney's balls, you know? <laughs> well, and, that's right. Yeah. Family. <laughs> Who uh, needs them? That's an F word if ever I heard uh, one. Hell yeah. Yeah, you know what? I should stop swearing and just say family and like everyone that's can worst still F be word. appalled. Yeah. So should I actually do the crime story or should we just keep like banging on about Oh, no, shit? I just had to get that out. <laughs> All right, let, me, let me blow my nose. Let me clear my throat. Or wipe my ass. I don't know what to do. I'm not sure what to do with this. Well, I mean, he's using toilet paper, not tissues. It could go I, either way. I fucking ran out of tissues. In I'm fact, the whole of Brunswick ran out of tissues because so, I was so snot infested. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that does not go in our podcast. Oh, well, I can actually hear now. Oh, cool. Well, well I, maybe not because you have to hear me. So oh, well, it's maybe that's not a good not a choice. Good, not a good thing. Put the snot back in. Put the snot back in. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that was yeah. great. I was on a plane. I was on a holiday to fucking nowhere because I'm not going <laughs> anywhere. Holidays. We don't get holidays. We don't get No holidays. Time and money. Who has that? No, no one but cunts. <laughs> oh, wow. That was a bit harsh. <laughs> and also nice people who oh, are just oh, good yeah. at organising Well, shit. they're good at organising yeah, stuff and work very hard. And they yeah. deserve a couple they of weeks, do. Of, weeks we off don't, a year. We don't because we're shit go, at shit and shit at organising stuff. They can go sit on a beach somewhere, lie in the sand. And, you know, maybe just read a magazine, not do anything, but read a book. Book. Do it. Read do a, a book. book. I read a book last week, just like on Sunday, and it was really good. What and is- it wasn't about true crime. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I was get- rebelling. I was like, in your face, I'm reading a book not about true crime. I don't crime. think I've read a fiction book in at least three years. Yeah, and we've only been doing the podcast for two. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm a bit obsessed it's with kind true of your, crime. Your own but fault. I'd like to have the time to read fiction. I used to read a lot of fiction. <laughs> What, your journal entries about how great you are? Oh, right. It's like that, is it? All right. Can I tell my about, crime about, story? Can about, we get somewhat through the show? What about that stuff in my journal that I wrote about my, my best friend Tara and how cool she is? That's fiction, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know. Also, it's fiction because it didn't happen. Well, it's fiction because you're shit. <coughs> so, yeah, that's how Barney coughs, if you are wondering. Well, I bet she was pretty annoyed by that Charlotte the Harlot lay dying ditty that was quite popular at the time. What is this? Uh, well, maybe it was more of an Australian thing, but it was around about that time. Okay, how does it go? Uh, I'll sing a little. I'll sing the first line. <laughs> okay. Too. Charlotte the Harlot lay dying, a penis supporting her head, around her three poofters lay what? crying. No. And she rose on her left hit and said, "Okay, that's really not okay." <laughs> You've never heard this before. Why the fuck would I have heard this? I don't know. Old men used to sing it in pubs when I was when I was quite really? younger. Yeah. What? Uh, yeah. It's look. That's another story. Get murdery again. That was incredibly wrong. It it made old sweary faced Tara turn into a blushing nun. Big fucker, little fucker. Know what I mean? Big fucker, little fucker. No, fucker what on I mean. a hill. Fucker Watch in a valley. Fucker roll down a hill. It's yeah. a fucker on a tower. It's a fucker <laughs> on a wall. It's a fucker in my house and gonna kick him in the balls. Rock fucker. Okay. Um. Adrian Brody loves ants. He likes to eat them. He does. Anyway, and, and but- you know what? I'm okay with it. It's probably my favourite thing about him, actually. He is an anteater. My girlfriend really fancies him. I know. She's into anteater types like you. I'm not an anteater type. <laughs> <laughs> what does that even mean? You've eaten a few ants in your time. Oh, well, yeah, by accident. We all have. You know, we're look, Australian. We eat spiders, ants, snakes. Oh well, of course. We just don't even know. Tara, you're on a picnic. You you want to eat your sandwich, and there's ants on it. You go fuck that. I'm eating it anyway. Well, and you, you blow on it, ants. and the ants that want to live leave, and the ants that want to die you, get eaten. Well, the ants on the inside, they're they're there though. They're there for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And you pull them out later. Wow. Okay. I'm glad my attempts to be of assistance have met with such <laughs> well, defensive. Well, I'm a horrible person, and I like and and yeah. So am I. We're the worst. Oh, How dare the wor- we? How dare, dare you? You're the worst. How dare you, Tara? How dare well, you have to put a gap between the how and the dare you. Let 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 me show you how dare you. Oh, that was amazing. I want to do it. I mean to say, how dare you? Yeah, that's it. That's good. Cool. Do you like good. how the motorbike like screamed in the background? Oh, well, I planned that. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Thanks, Freddie.
You can go now. All right. Dolphin fuck. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.